Hi, I'm Olivia McCollins, and this is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty and staff, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. the everyday observer, Parkinson's disease looks like a condition that compromises motor skills, usually in older people. But it does much more than that. It also causes communication problems that lead to social isolation and the sadness that results. Produced Jessica Huber is winning accolades for doing something about it. Her so-called speech vibe invention, which patients wear in one of their ears, is giving people with Parkinson's a new voice and lease on life. I guess for me, some of these patients, they lose themselves in the disease, and I like seeing them come back to themselves. So, you know, like one of them, he's like a really funny guy. He's hysterical. He's always joking. But because of the disease, it affects his ability to express that vocally and facially because of the way the disease affects his muscles. But it comes back with the device. And I love seeing other people get how funny he is. I like watching them think he's funny. It's really rewarding to see that. That's why I do it. Huber, a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences in Purdue's College of Health and Human Sciences, says her invention, the speech vibe device, helps patients overcome communication challenges that Parkinson's poses. What we see with people with Parkinson's disease is that, in particular, there's a death of neurons that are involved in the production of a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And that's a substance in the brain that neurons use to communicate with one another. And dopamine is very much a goal-directed kind of transmitter. So it helps us make decisions. It helps us choose a path. It helps us to monitor our own behavior. It also is really important for motor behavior. And that's what we see with people with Parkinson's is that, you know, we think about a hand tremor, body tremor, we think about falls, but it has very wide-ranging effects. It affects not only balance, but walking and speech, cognition, mood. So it has very large effects on the person. And it's slowly degenerative. So patients slowly get worse over time. There are certainly periods where they're relatively steady and don't have any decline. And then there'll be periods where they're declining. And so from the speech side, we really think about the problems that they have with communicating because we know that they have difficulty being heard. They have difficulty being understood. Their speech tends to be quiet and slurred, and they also can use kind of a fast rate. And so if it's a slurred articulation that's hard to hear and they're talking really quickly, it can be very hard on the listeners. And what those patients do, naturally, if no one understood us, we would stop trying to communicate. And they kind of back away from communication. They start to be socially isolated, and that exacerbates depression and anxiety for these people. I like to think of it as a prosthetic instead of a therapy because over half the patients, when they take the device off, they will revert right back to their more typical speech pattern. So it's really more like your glasses or a hearing aid. And so what it does is it has a little sensor in it that can tell when the person is talking and we actually set it for the person so it's tuned to their voice. 
and the device clicks on some noise in their ear. It sounds like a bunch of people talking at once, like if you're at a restaurant and there's lots of people talking, but you don't know what anyone is saying. And that noise plays while the person talks. And when they stop talking, it turns off. And it's eliciting that Lombard effect where they talk louder, slower, and more clearly automatically as a response to that noise. So it really is just kind of assistance that they can put on anytime they're going to be talking to someone. If they're going to, you know, go to a dinner, they're going to be somewhere, they want to talk to their spouse, it can be a way that they can automatically use this device to improve their communication. And so, and, you know, when thinking about the patient experience of this, what were some of the challenges when designing this device and just thinking about What can we do to prevent Mm -hmm. other things from happening? So it sounds really easy. The device sounds like it should have been, like, so easy to make. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everyone says, oh, that's so simple. I could, you know, that sounds really easy to make. It was really hard. So when we first got the first grant that we used to develop the device, I worked with biomedical engineering here on campus. George Wadaka is the head of that department, and he provided some resources to me to developed the device using some of the engineers in his department, Jim Jones and Kirk Foster. And also in my department, we had two engineers, Derek Tully and Scott Kepner, and they built it. I mean, they really designed it. So Derek built the first one out of junk we found inside the engineering office in our department. And then we went to biomedical engineering and they made it kind of spiffier, but it was still kind of a large box that a person wore on their hip. And there were cords going to the sensor on their neck and a cord going to their ear to play the noise. Well, that's like too big, too many cords. So when we wanted to move to the market, we had to shrink it. We had to figure out how to sense the voice in a smaller package, insulate the vocal sensor from the noise generator. So there were a lot of really tough design challenges. And we worked with an outside design firm and then... From there, we had the regular growing pains of going from small-scale manufacturing to large-scale manufacturing, small-scale software development to large-scale software development. And we worked with a startup in town that does software development to develop the software. So it's taken a long time. It was I learned a lot about manufacturing that I did not know. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and even with those challenges, it ended up being a great success. Yeah. And what have you heard from patients or just you know, from people who have used Mm -hmm. this, what have you heard what the benefits were for them and kind of how their daily lives have changed because they wear Mm -hmm. this device? We hear from patients some. We hear a lot from family members and caregivers Mm -hmm. that this has restored their relationship with the person who has Parkinson's disease, that they can communicate with their spouse again, how valuable it is to their lives together has been a constant theme from caregivers and from patients. Patients, I like some of their comments. They say things like, my kids really think I sound better, or I don't notice it, but my spouse thinks this makes me sound so much better because it's a reflex. They don't think about when you're in a loud restaurant, you don't even notice that you're talking louder, but you are. But you are. Mm -hmm. And they don't notice either, but they are. And But the people they're trying to talk to really start to notice So those are the kinds of comments we get. We get a lot of, you know, if someone loses their device, they're frantic to get another one. We have very few returns to the company because 
people, if they're chosen correctly, if a speech pathologist or someone is able to really see that they have a speech problem and feels this is going to be a good fit for them, they often do very well with it. Now, it's not a cure-all. It doesn't cure the Parkinson's disease, and it doesn't work for everybody. But for the people that it does work for, it can be really beneficial. And I think that patients really like it because they're You know, I've had people use it who are able to stay to work longer because they are able to communicate. So some of the things that drive people with Parkinson's disease out of the workplace or out of their social circles, this is one way to keep them engaged in both of those things. Mm -hmm. So I really, I enjoy that. I enjoy seeing them be more independent. And I think their caregivers really enjoy that too. Yeah, I bet. And I was going to ask, what are some of the rewarding aspects of this in this journey for you? You mentioned some of the challenges, but what were the roses in this? All the people with Parkinson's disease and their caregivers I've gotten to meet, I love them all. I've met some really good friends that were really special to me. I mean, some have passed away. Some are still with me. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, some of these patients, they lose themselves in the disease, and I like seeing them come back to themselves. The Speech 5 device is just one way Huber impacts the lives of people with degenerative motor diseases. You also founded the Center for Research on Brain Behavior and Neurorehabilitation in 2016. Mm-hmm. So when creating this center, what was your vision for this? Yeah, our vision is to focus on, so I think a lot of centers, when they think about aging and degenerative disease, they're thinking about curing. And I think that's wonderful to think about how we cure diseases of aging and how we cure neurologic disease. But I think we also have to think about people who are living with these diseases and who are aging and make quality of life better for them. And so the center is really a combination of people who study, you know, cell models, preclinical models and clinical models of aging and neurological disease, particularly degenerative disease, all with a focus on improving quality of life, understanding diseases and how what we can learn, how what we learn from cell models and preclinical models teach us about clinical, the symptoms people show with clinical disease, what do they mean about how their body is functioning or how their brain is functioning, but also to let these clinical models, these patient populations, inform our preclinical and cellular models, which is a direction that we often don't go in science. And so we really, in the center, wanted to have bidirectional collaboration in basic science and applied science researchers with the goal of improving quality of life and developing, in particular, treatments, devices, techniques that we can take to the market, whether it's in a for-profit way or a not-for-profit way or even just in a disseminating way to help quality of life for these patients and for just older adults in general. And so we really hope that we advance the knowledge base about these diseases and about aging and what it what are the physiologic and biologic and neurologic processes going on so that we can pick better targets, we can have better preclinical models and better treatment targets, but also want to get some of those treatment targets tested and get them out so that they start helping people. So I think it's both sides, and I think good science is always that. What we know works for someone informs what we know about a disease. So we can take applied science and better understand the underpinnings of a disease, but we can also study that disease at a basic science level and use that information to drive new treatments. And what the center is trying to do is do both those things 
Just looking back at your work thus far, what would be some of the wow moments and what would be some of the oh no moments? (laughs) Well, so some of the wow moments for me have been things where like the speech vibe. I was I thought it would probably work, but I wasn't sure. And I remember the first device we built was just it was so it was not fancy. (laughs) And when I saw it work, I just I will never forget the day that we tried it for the first time and it just worked so well. I remember just being floored. And then when the data started coming in and I could see that they were actually using their system in a in a more efficient way as they use the device over time, that was really exciting to me. I've had some wow moments in the basic science side. So where I found collaborators who really understand my desire to drive applied science forward, but want to work with me to really understand what makes things work better and what is this disease. I've been really blessed here at Purdue with wonderful collaborators and really smart people to work with. It's really been a fantastic career. I think some of my oh no moments have been, so we're going to do this really large study. And I thought this is going to be great. And then you start doing it and it's hard you know, we did an implementation science study with practicing clinicians in the field, and that was, it wasn't an oh-no, but it was a big learning experience. Mm-hmm. There were lots of little oh-nos along the way where I thought, oh, no, what's going to happen? But it all worked out. But science is hard when you don't know what's going to happen, and that's the best, most exciting science is when mm-hmm. you don't know if it's going to work or you don't know how it's going to turn out. It's really exciting when it does turn out, but it's just as interesting when it doesn't. We now turn to a conversation with Purdue nursing student Julie Smith, who, since our chat, has graduated from Purdue and begun her nursing career, caring for children with developmental delays at Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis. But it was her first job that shaped her life forever. That was as a mother of four. I was, our first child was born, I was 21. So I've always been a mom. But Smith's experience of motherhood is far from the norm. Two months after the birth of her fourth child, her three youngest children were diagnosed with a rare terminal illness known as Neiman-Pick disease type C, or NPC. NPC is a genetic disorder that causes a dangerous accumulation of cholesterol in the brain, liver, and spleen. Patients lose the ability to walk, talk, and eat. The Smith kids were wheelchair-bound and needed feeding tubes by the time they passed away. Brayden died at age 10, Riley at age 15, and Keaton at 14. Those stricken with MPC typically succumb before reaching age 20. For 15 years, Smith and her husband Trent cared for and advocated for Brayden, Riley, and Keaton. Their eldest child, daughter Chandler, did not inherit the disorder. As Smith described it in her application to Purdue's nursing program, her days shifted from playdates and trips to the park to appointments with occupational and physical therapists and trips to Riley Hospital to meet with specialists. Yeah, that's why it's not a sad story, because we were blessed. There is something just really special about kids with NPC. They just have a light. (laughs) The Smith's last child with NPC, Keaton, died in 2015. That's when Smith began to struggle with how best to move forward. 
And I just was like, what am I going to do next? I worked at um, Battleground Middle School as a para, and my first degree was like economics. I worked for a stock brokerage firm, and I just, the pull to be a teacher was there because I love kids, but I didn't really see myself as a teacher. But one afternoon, she had an unexpected flash of insight. And so we were actually driving to Harrison High School was where our kids went. Mm -hmm. And they were playing in the soccer state championship. And we got off the exit and Riley Hospital's right there. And I just had that, I think I want to work there. My husband's like, you're crazy. I think I want to be a nurse. And he said, no. <laughs> like Because we spent so much time in the hospital with our kids. And you know, you have good experiences, you have bad experiences. And ultimately we had, you know, we left three kids in the hospital. So, but I just, I had that aha moment. I don't necessarily believe in, like for, I just never really believed in those callings. She started slowly, taking one class at a time at Ivy Tech Community College. Then in the fall of 2018, Smith enrolled in Purdue's second degree nursing program. As she looks back, Smith recalls tender memories about her child rearing years. Raising sick children involved much more than tending to their health. Julie and her husband continued to enjoy an active social life with friends and family, and their kids eagerly participated. Yeah, we learned quickly that you don't take life for granted, that one day at a time, and they were not sad kids. They were lives of the party wherever we went, and they had support wherever they went. They were not going to sit home and be sick, and we... You know, we felt that in them, and we're outgoing people. Mm -hmm. um, we like friends. We like being in large groups. So they went to football, basketball, softball. Our daughter, who their sibling was very involved in school, so we went to plays and, you know, anything she was doing, she cheered. We did all of that. And so they knew people. They were the mayors of our little world, you know. they Wherever they went, people were not thing they did religious ed all the way through and mm -hmm. they just were new new stranger and people I really believe people learned from them and they're still I get random notes thought of keeping today or and people will share stories and that age group is graduating from college so those people are still you know they I run into them on campus and so it's still this yeah great community connection that we have, yeah. During those tough but treasured years, the Smiths drew support from a large and loving community of friends, co-workers, family, and medical professionals in West Lafayette. Yeah, we didn't walk this journey alone. We walked it with their peers, we walked it with our friends, and people right and left reached out to help how they could. To make things as normal as possible? Yeah. Right. The Smiths started a charitable foundation to spur research in MPC. The Smith Family Breakthrough Fund, which uses the capital letters B, R, and K for Braden, Riley, and Keaton, has raised money with an annual golf outing and through the Infinity Coaches Challenge with Purdue men's basketball coach Matt Painter. In 2012, the Breakthrough Fund gave $200,000 to support MPC research underway in Purdue's Department of Chemistry. There, with a molecule called cyclodextrin, David Thompson, a chemist and cancer researcher, is developing a promising therapy 
that has the potential to alleviate MPC symptoms in the body's visceral organs. The Smiths understood the value of Thompson's work. Today, his cyclodextrin therapy is moving steadily toward food and drug administration approval. And so our very first break was through a source of funding was through the Breakthrough Fund. For Thompson, meeting families affected by MPC has been emotional, humbling, and inspiring. He says he feels honored to know Julie. What a wonderful person. So inspiring. And, you know, you hope for an ounce of that strength to get on with your your day. You know, seeing how it impacts families and what they go through. And, and actually, that's what's been also very impactful for myself and for the students who've been on this project. Although the Smith children couldn't benefit from the therapy under development in Thompson's lab, he says he is dedicated to helping families like the Smiths. And so it just recommits you. If you lost any, managed to lose any uh, steam, any wind in your sails, your sails are full again after that meeting. You, you realize, you know, what you're trying to do is help these kids survive. Julie Smith, now 48 years old, completed Purdue's second-degree nursing program, an accelerated, full-time, four-semester curriculum. It was 16 months of rigorous, challenging work. But returning to school was a kind of therapy for Smith. Because there was a window there, I was like, oh, how are you going to make it through tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So it's been such, and I talked with a professor who had done something similar just this week. Her husband passed, and she went back and got her doctorate. And then the, we had a guest speaker on grief and loss. And when her husband died, she went to school to get her degree in education. So I went up after and I said, that's me. Like, my children passed and I turned to education. I said, it seems so much healthier than any other choices. Right. And it has. It has definitely, it's my own therapy. Not that school came easily. She missed the familiarity of her tightly knit support community at home and the science-based material was a challenge. I was extremely nervous to be in a classroom with 20-year-olds. I felt extremely uncomfortable, but I also have always had a very good relationship with that age group. I have a daughter who's 26, and it's not that, you know, I, I really like kids. I have several family friends that I call and say, hey, let's grab lunch or dinner. But to sit in a class with them and be their peers felt so awkward, but... They were very welcoming. It's not that big a deal to them. And so once I got over that hump, <laughs> I was like, hmm, and I, I don't do things as quick as them. I learn slower. I have to work harder. Mm-hmm. But they've been great. And then getting into the second degree program, they've been wonderful. Smith is philosophical. She knows what patients and their families care most about, feeling supported, and having an advocate in their healthcare experience. For people considering Purdue's second-degree nursing program, she offers a few words of wisdom. I don't know. I mean, my advice to the people in this program and to, you know, is just to remember that we, school can be stressful and overwhelming, but you just, it's not always about the grade, and it's not always about that one test score or quiz score or whatever that you didn't do well on. 
this is about helping people and learning to make a difference in someone's life. And you may not see that now because it's such a pressure situation to get the good grade and get through, but ultimately you're going to be sitting with someone, whether it's a family member or the patient, and you... Mm -hmm. They're never going to ask you what that grade was or how well you did on yeah. a test or they want you to be a supporter and to just, you know, be an advocate for them. Despite extreme personal hardship, Smith is thriving today. I do believe you do have to tell yourself, I can do this and take it a day at a time. And you know your end goal and if it's, you know, to be happier or to improve your self-worth or just get through a tragedy, it's one day at a time and you have to rely on your support and you have to find good support. It doesn't come always come naturally. Sometimes you have to seek that support, mm-hmm. but there are so many good people in the world. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at Purdue edu slash podcast. There you can route to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a review. As always, boiler up. <laughs>